Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This episode is about magic. And for our first trick, we're going to make the election disappear. Are you listening closely? Here we go. And that's it. You will hear nothing else about that thing for the rest of the show. Perhaps that trick alone will put you in the mood to suspend some doubt about the existence of magic in the world. Certainly, that is the best state of mind to be in to hear the argument of Chris Gosden, author of Magic, A History, from alchemy to witchcraft, from the Ice Age to the present. Gosden is interested in magic as a legitimate way of thinking about the world, rather than as a quirky belief or a backwards attitude. He thinks we need more magical thinking in the world, not less. And he's no flake. He's a professor of anthropology at Oxford University and has come to this belief after decades of study. So if you think we'd all be better off if we stopped believing in the supernatural or the numinous, take a seat. We'll start sawing that argument in half. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I I have a a side interest in magic myself, um, magical thinking. Um, It's funny. It's one of the things that's sort of been a constant in my life, like a a little bit of believing in ghosts and kind of maybe going to a tarot reader. And I don't know. I believe in Yeah, lots of people do. Lots of people. Maybe this is a good way to get into perhaps the first question someone might have. Uh, in looking at a history of magic, which is how do you define magic for the purposes of of your history? Definitions are vital but tricky. So my definition is that magic is human participation in the universe. Um, So that if we believe that we can participate in the universe, we feel that our actions, our our words, our um, deeds can can affect change in the world, Um, but also reciprocally that the world can uh, influence us. So if you believe in astrology, which many people do, then you believe that the stars, moon, planets and so on can influence how you do day to day and and in the longer term. So so for me, magic is a sort of openness to the universe, a two-way, two-way flow from us to it and it back to us again. I probably want to note what that excludes, which is Houdini type stuff, tricks. It, you're not interested in magic like uh, making a coin disappear. I'm interested in it, but it's it, for me. It's for me. It's I love all that stuff, but it's a different thing. That's for me. That's sleight of hand. I mean, Houdini's slightly different, obviously, but it's it's tricking the tricking the onlooker in some in some way, which is incredibly skilled and fantastic. But 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 the sort of magic I'm interested in is closer to the level of sort of religion and and science in the the, the seriousness with which it takes the world. And that's another contrast we should probably make. I don't know if this is appropriate to do now or, or after we've laid out the history, but one of the main arguments of your book is that magic is connected to science and to religion as an equal partner. Because I think a lot of people, even myself, I, I probably believe that magic is somehow like a primitive thing. Like magic leads to other things, but to believe in magic is a little bit of a a throwback of some kind. It's, a, it's not sophisticated thinking. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you're my perfect audience to some degree in that you you seem to be somewhat sympathetic to magic, but but slightly doubtful about it, as we all are. So so for me, um, religion is fairly obviously a belief in a single God or many gods, something that transcends the human, transcends the world. And science is um, it tries to give us an objective stance to understand the world in terms of mass and force and growth and those sorts of things, whereby people aren't involved in the world in a, a direct way when they're observing it. And, and science is seen to be technically effective. You understand the world in order to change it. And, and, and a crucial part of my book is that all three of these strands, magic, religion, and science, do different things. They're complementary um, therefore, none is better or worse than the other. They're just they're just different parts of human history, and we don't have to choose. We don't have to be religious or scientific or or believe in magic. We we can mix and match all three of them, and 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 I think a healthy way of life will encourage us to do just just that. So it's certainly not an anti-science book. It's certainly not an anti-religion book. It's just trying to add magic into the mix. And I've got this notion of a triple helix, a bit like the, the DNA double helix, but I've added three, three things, magic, religion, and science, which I see as long-term strands through, through human history. Let's get to the history because it is fascinating. So you've posited that that magic isn't a, a throwback way of thinking, right? It, it is a sophist. It's as, as legitimate way of thinking about the world as science and as religion. Um, but magic came first. It seems like magic is, yeah. I think all human beings have some belief in the transcendent, um, which may not be labelled as as religion, some understanding of of forces and and growth and those sorts of things, although they wouldn't label those as science. Um, And and possibly earliest on, the, the most developed area of human action and belief is what we call magic people trying to intercede with with the spirit world the world beyond the the one that is most apparent to us but i but i think even though people didn't have these words magic religion and science there was some appreciation and an understanding of all all three but possibly possibly we could say magic is older in its more sort of formalized practices if i understand correctly the way that magic worked for the earliest peoples, the earliest, you know, species we can call human, it was a complementary way of thinking to their um, way of like ordering the world. And also, and this is the part that I find fascinating, differentiating themselves from like other forces. Like you mentioned something about how magic helped people define what it is to be human. So, so yes, I mean, both differentiating themselves but involving themselves. So, I mean, it's a tricky term, but anthropologists and archaeologists talk about this notion of animism. People are animists, believe that the whole world is, is the whole universe is sentient. Um, many people believe that the whole world is human. 
that it takes even a rock can be human, but in a different form. And these are beliefs that are quite confronting to our Western views of the world. We, we would find it very difficult, impossible probably, to, to see many things as human. But, but certainly people today, and almost certainly in the past, um, believe these things quite sincerely. So, so if everything is human, then you're relating to a stream or a rock or a tree or a bear in much the same way as you are as, as to another human. You need respect, care, all of those sorts of things. But as you say, um, they, people always realise that, that human humans, as it were, were slightly different. So, so an understanding of both how people were you know, related, but also in some way different, was, was very much a part of magic. And the sorts of distinctions we make, say, between different species of, of plants and animals and us aren't necessarily made in the same. It's a, it's a view of the world that tends to mix things up rather than separate them out. The way that I think about it, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, is that as humans developed you know, even slightly more sophisticated ways of existing and existing in a society, they needed some framework to explain things that seemed unexplainable, maybe something like fire or, or invisible for an invisible force, a sickness, perhaps you can't see sickness. Um, and that magic is kind of a way of explaining those things that can lead to a form of science, can lead to a form of religion. You know, if, if you realize people get sick, you may think this person got sick because of a spirit, but you also notice they get better when they have the willow bark. The willow bark may be also a spirit, but it's a kind of, but it's also, it's both. Is that, is that, am I, am I on the right track there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I would say all human beings past and present, you know, back to several hundred thousand years ago, probably have a model of reality. We have some sense of what the universe is like. Now, that model is always imperfect. We always realize, you know, today we realize that there are lots of things that we don't know, but we've got some sense of how the world works in, in general terms um, and, and notions of spirit or more, you know, mechanical forms of cause and effect probably mixed together. And, and as you say, notions of illness would have been extremely important. Why did, why did people get sick? How do you make them better? And, and yes, making a tea out of willow bark um, could well have been a regular practice, but, but not necessarily one that was understood in terms of you know, biochemistry and chemistry in the way that we would understand those things. Certainly, notions of germ theory uh, are very recent um, but but yeah, people people did realise that if you know, particular conditions, um, often not always, if you fed people willow bark tea regularly, then then things would get better. So so people had these sort of broad ideas of reality, and then much more specific little routes through them to 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 make things better, pre to prevent things getting worse, all the things that we all all do all of the time. It only just occurs to me now that this need for a framework that magic can fill is something that we fill today in all sorts of ways. And we've talked about 
on this show, we we've we talk about conspiracy theories and the attraction of conspiracy theories a lot. And it just occurred to me that is the same kind of thing, a way of explaining the unexplainable. You 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 have to think that there is a framework for this, that things happen for a reason. And humans, I guess, I mean, humans always have to believe things happen for a reason at some level. Because <laughs> just to, to believe otherwise is is too freaky. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we also acknowledge that yeah, weird things happen that, that are quite hard to explain, things that we might call coincidence. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone operates within a, a notion that the world, to some degree, has regularities, predictabilities, um, that, that although our understanding is imperfect, there are ways of starting to grip, get to grips with, you know, if this happens, then this other thing follows. I mean, the thing I like about magic um, is that it gives you a much more holistic view of the world. So I think science is incredibly effective, but it shines a very bright light on a particular area. So coronavirus, people are now attempting to understand the, the evolution of the virus, what it does to the human body. Um, and, and science, when it works, and it often does work, is incredibly good at shining this very specific light on a fairly small and discrete area of reality. What, what magic is much better at doing is giving you a sense of the whole. Um, and 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 science notoriously, you know, does doesn't have any morality inherent. <laughs> you have to you have to add it in, right? Whereas whereas magic always asks, you know, not only can we do this, but should we do it? And the and the should we question is an extremely important one. I wish I could pull a quarter out of your ear to support the show, but instead, you're going to have to hear some ads. Ritual is a longtime sponsor of With Friends Like These. Do you really know what's in your multivitamin? Sugars, GMOs, synthetic fillers, artificial colorants, not to mention animal byproducts like sheep's wool and gelatin from hooves and hides are all ingredients you might find in a typical multivitamin. But Ritual is not your typical multivitamin. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly formula is made with key nutrients in forms that your body can actually use. There are no shady extras. I've been using Ritual for years now. One of the medications I take can be boosted by certain kinds of vitamins, and Ritual has those vitamins in it. And of course, Ritual is part of my ritual. It's my morning ritual to open up the minty fresh bottle and get started with my day. Ritual is the multivitamin reimagined. It's now available for women, men, and teens. Ritual multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. Your multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription at any time. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they will refund your order. You deserve to know what's in your multivitamin. That's why Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company that connects you with a dermatologist online who can prescribe your products to meet your skincare goals. Prescription skincare works, but it can be hard to get and it's kind of expensive. 
Apostrophe makes prescription skincare that you'll actually want to use, and it's easy to get. And it's, you know, if you're in a place, let's say, where you're getting some wrinkles but kind of don't want to admit it to yourself, don't want to go to a doctor and, like, talk about your wrinkles, you can just send some pictures and say what you want. And your dermatologist will help you out. And it is true. The prescriptions that you can get for fine lines work. Unlike stuff that's over the counter, you can actually see a difference. And their prescription creams come in an airless pump. They come like something from the department store and not from the pharmacy to ensure those potent ingredients stay effective. Plus, your first order comes with cute stickers to decorate your bottle or whatever you want to decorate. I've been using Apostrophe since before they became a sponsor, actually. I first went to them because I developed rosacea, because I was doing hot yoga all the time. And turns out that's easy to fix. And then there were the fine lines and wrinkles. And now I'm kind of on a maintenance thing. And I love that my dermatologist, even though we just know each other online, checks in with me to make sure that I'm happy with the stuff that I'm using. Uh, He doesn't really push anything. He just wants to know if I want to, you know, do more, do less, whatever. He seems to care, which is awesome. So get your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com for only $5 when you use our code FRIENDS. This code is only available to people listening to this podcast right now. To get started, go to apostrophe.com and click Begin Visit and then use code FRIENDS to sign up and you'll get your dermatology visit for only $5. That's apostrophe.com, apostrophe.com, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E.com and use that code FRIENDS to get your dermatology visit for only $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that is known for its delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is real, fair trade, single-origin Arabic coffee with lion's mane mushroom in it for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. I've been starting my day with their ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane instead of real coffee because, well, it's real coffee and It's real coffee without the jitteriness, and I still wake up the way that coffee wakes me up, and I get just as focused. It doesn't bother my gut, and again, it doesn't add to the anxiety that I already feel. (laughs) All Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Plus, every single batch is third-party tested to ensure its purity and safety, so you know what you're getting. It's the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. You may be thinking coffee with mushrooms, it probably tastes like mushrooms. No, it tastes like coffee. It tastes exactly like coffee. And you can put cream and sugar in it. And it's coffee. You have your your morning start that you need without your afternoon crash. There are over 20,000 five-star reviews. And best of all, Four Sigmatic backs their products with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee, This is just for with friends like these listeners, just for you who are listening right now. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash friends. Only good for you. Only good for listeners to this podcast. It's not available on their regular website. You'll save up to 40% and get free shipping. So go right now to foursigmatic. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C. 
com slash friends to fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. We return to hear more about magic from Chris Gosden. I want to get a little um, more into the history. Maybe it would be helpful. What did that earliest magic look like? Can we imagine that? You make a point throughout the book that it's very difficult to imagine how these earliest humans lived. But I wonder if we could get a picture of it. Yes, I mean, getting back into really early human history, tens of thousands of years ago, when the world looked very different, there were ice ages, there were saber-toothed tigers, there were mammoths, there were all sorts of things. And, and people were you know, physically and mentally like us, but they probably constructed their worlds in very different ways. So getting back that far is a combination of sort of careful empirical work excavating sites, trying to work out what what was there, how old it was, all those. But then also some degree of imagination. So, for instance, one of the earliest objects I talk about in the book is a, a, a carved ivory figure from a cave in Germany, and this figure is 40,000 years old. And the ivory that it's carved from is, is mammoth ivory. Um, and it's made into the form partly of a human, probably a male human because it has a penis, um, but also an element of, of lion. The head appears to be the head of a lion. So, so it seems likely that you've got three species that we would separate out mixed up here, the mammoth, the lion, and the human. And, and maybe people are combining the strengths and capacities because obviously mammoths are very strong, lions are both strong and fierce, and humans are whatever humans are and maybe if you infuse you know the strength of the lion and, and of the mammoth into the person then you get a person of a different type who's able to do all sorts of things that that other people aren't so 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 you know we can we can speculate hopefully in a, a, a sort of controlled way and these these things are relatively common things that mix up species for instance people people and lions and and uh, in a whole range of different things but they they're, they're thought provoking they make you make you think what they were up to 40,000 years ago i like the way you you added maybe male cuz also we don't know how they thought about gender we don't know if if they had the same kind of attachment, as it were, that we do to physical presentation of, of male or female, what we call male or female. No, that's a really good. And, and this thing, because it's 40,000 years old, is a bit flaky. And it's possible that the, the penis was deliberately detached. It certainly falls off now, but maybe then it was deliberately detachable. So maybe, maybe it was, a, in our terms, a sort of multi-gendered object. You talk a lot about how magic, you know, connects us to the world and, and that's one of its primary purposes. But it seems to me that your argument as we move up through history is also that magic is about mediating society. Magic becomes more important uh, as a structure as people become, you know, uh, caught in larger groups that they're not so... Um, you know, uh, itinerant. They 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 need something to help them relate to each other, and magic is one of those things. There's a there's a famous anthropological case written by a man called Evans Pritchard, anthropologist called Evans Pritchard, who worked in the area uh, today of southern Sudan with a group called the Azandi, 
And the Azandi, like many people, believed in witchcraft. So a famous instance that Evans Pritchard talks about is someone sitting in the shade of a granary, and these granaries were were sort of huts, but up on up on legs. And while they were sitting underneath the granary, it collapsed on them and killed them. So, so the question for the Azandi was, um, so at some level they realised that the, the granary collapsed because the legs were rotten, that the ants had eaten through all that. But the question for them was, um, why had it, it collapsed at that very moment that this particular person was under there? And the answer was, was witchcraft. And then further questions immediately came, uh, which were all to do with tensions within the community who had a grudge against the person who was killed? How, you know, how did this grudge, was it an argument about land, marriage, payment, all sorts of things? And, and, and Evans Pritchard said that what appears to us to be witchcraft and a series of you know, unlikely beliefs is in fact a means of tracing tension through the community who did what to whom, who was angry at whom. And in so doing, you not only threw light on the particular instance, but hopefully you also brought to light simmering hidden tensions and 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 made them less. So, so for him, it was witchcraft was very much a means of helping people to live together to, you know, in a regulated and an orderly way. It's interesting to me to hear that. Because I think especially Americans who have any kind of passing interest in magic, witchcraft, et cetera, we think of the witch trials. But from your example, a big difference is if you accept magic, if you don't think magic in and of itself is evil or bad, it's actually a more helpful way of negotiating those tensions, perhaps. Absolutely, absolutely. And the the ancient Egyptian... Egyptians had a term for magic, which was heka, H-E-K-A is how it's it's spelt in English. And 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 their view, without trivialising it at all, was a bit like it was a bit like the force in Star Wars, so that people people could use this force, and the force itself wasn't inherently good or bad, but could be used for good, could be used for evil. And for the Egyptians, it wasn't just people that were subject and influenced by Heka, but also the gods. So the whole, you know, sort of animate universe was participating in this broad force and trying to use it for their own purposes, good or bad. I mean, I think just to pick up on the witchcraft, I mean, I think many of us would think of of magic as a bad thing, black magic, all of those sorts of things. And and those, the witchcraft trials which were found throughout the the Western world um, from the 16th century to the 18th century were, you know, not just in my view, but many people's views, definitely pathological. It was a use of the term magic for the worst and and as you say most repressive of of purposes and often violence by men against women so so i think i 
witchcraft and the witch trials tend to loom large in our our thought when we now think about magic. But I I think when you actually look at magic past and present and you, you sort of weigh up a balance sheet of magic, often the good stuff, the protective stuff, the diagnostic stuff, the, the you know, helping other people thrive, it outweighs the bad, the black magic, the, the black masses, the inversions, the witchcrafts, all of that sort of thing. I, it looks like in your book that the 19th century is a bit of a turning point for magic as the Enlightenment takes hold, and that's when the idea that magic might be, as I keep sort of putting it, a throwback of sorts, a less sophisticated way of thinking. But during that time, there's some really interesting examples of people who we think of as brilliant and scientific, and they have a complementary belief in magic. Newton is the most famous one, and and you, you talk about him quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. No, Newton is is you know, exhibit A in this in this regard. So, so John Maynard Keynes, the the economist, bought Newton's papers and realised that a lot of what Newton wrote about, as well as op- optics and gravity and you know mathematics, was also alchemy, biblical prophecy, astrology, a whole range of different things. And Maynard Keynes said that Newton was not the first of the scientists, he was the last of the magicians. And I think Newton is a really good case because we think of him as the sort of quintessential early modern scientist. But I don't, in in Newton's brain, there wasn't a bit of his brain that did magic and another bit that did science. It was all uh, joined up. And again, he was interested. He was sort of interested in what we've come to call now a grand theory of everything. He wanted to look at how forces, you know, how mass attracted each other, how optics worked, how things grew. But he also wanted to include God. He wanted to include angels. He wanted to include the Bible. And he was interested in sort of connecting all these things up. Whereas he's often seen as the start of a more mechanical science, which which then looked down on on magic. And as you say, by the nineteenth century, um, then people very much viewed magic as a as a bad thing. And and early anthropologists, for instance, in the later part of the nineteenth century, there was a famous guy called E. B. Tyler, who thought that the the history of of human intellectual life went from a belief in magic to a belief in religion to a belief in science, and each one was an improvement on the previous. That's a good place for me to interject. Uh, That way of thinking is also incredibly racist. (laughs) It it seems to me. (laughs) Ah, No, no, without any shadow of a doubt. Yes, so so people people labelled magic primitive. I mean, Tyler was was very shocked to find magical practices in, in 19th century Britain because he felt it was, you know, people far away in other, other places. And part of my effort with magic in this book is to democratise magic, to show that we all have some 
form of magical belief um and that it's you know it, it's something something that unites us rather than you know some people who who are, are ill educated or you know somewhere in a backwater of history still believe in but us enlightened people don't anymore i mean i just think that's that's entirely right and as you say is does have all sorts of racist connotations this show isn't just conjured from thin air. We have sponsors, and here they are. With Friends Like These is proud to be sponsored by Stamps.com. This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before. That means the post office is going to be busy, and you don't have time for that. Stamps.com brings the post office and UPS shipping right to your computer. Mail and ship anything from the convenience of your home or office. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With my promo code FRIENDS, you get a special offer that includes four-week free trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's Stamps.com and enter FRIENDS. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. We just had our election, and we got to vote for the best candidates, or at least the candidates, for president, vice president, and hundreds of people in Congress. That's a lot of jobs to fill, especially after months of watching debates and researching their experiences and positions. What if you had to do all that work every time you wanted to hire someone? Thankfully, there's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. First, when you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash F-R-I-E-N-D-S. You may be stressed out about the election, but you won't be stressed out about hiring when you try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the conversation. So I think something that might be occurring to listeners right now, because it occurred to me, is that your argument about these things being complementary and and that we can have a belief in science and have a belief in magic seems almost in this modern age that, that where I, I'll put it in a political context where many people in America have to argue that science is real because we're 
you know, arguing with anti-vaxxers or climate change denialists. The idea that we would accept some form of magic into our beliefs seems like a admitting defeat on some level. Like, but you don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I'm aware of the dangers of the of my argument, and and I always and I sincerely, I, I sincerely believe this. Then, you know, it, it, there's no way we can, should, you know, will be anti-science. Science, science works. It's an incredibly powerful tool for allowing us to understand all sorts of things. The fact that we can communicate right now over huge distances is due to due to science. But uh, as I say, I mean, science science is incredibly effective in allowing us to understand parts of the world in particular ways. Um, we shouldn't mistake a scientific worldview for the you know total summing up of reality so and what it as i was saying before what it tends to leave out is a, a moral belief so i think if if you start from my definition of magic as magic as participation then if if we participate in the world if we're part of the flows and energies of the world which we clearly are then one of the implications of that really important implication is that we have a responsibility to the world it's not just that we can affect the world in any way we want we have to think about what we're doing and how we're doing it and and magic i think allows us to to in, well, encourages us to think in terms of a duty of care, a duty of, of relationship, of kin. So just as we look after our family and friends, then, then if we have a notion of, of participatory magic, then, then our significant others are spread out through the world as well. And I think many people, perhaps not all, but many of us would think that we're in a mess right now. Um, the, the world is in a difficult state in all sorts of different ways. There's ecological collapse. And almost certainly we can't go on doing the things that we're doing for very well. I mean, we should already be stopping doing many of the things, extractive things that we're doing. So, so as I, I think I said before, I mean, science allows us to ask, can we do it? magic makes us ask should we do it so so what we need i think is a reset of our relationship with the world and and magic provides a series of intellectual and psychological resources to allow us to rethink reset our relationship into something that is a bit more healthy a bit more balanced a bit more respectful I love the argument that we should have more magic in the in the Western world, but we did talk about how the belief that magic is backwards is a really racist belief, and there is, I feel like a lot of racism sort of inherent in the way that white people think about magic, and it's if if nothing else, it's appropriative. So, is there a way to have a Western person adopt a, a a framework of magic that isn't appropriating from a, another culture? Yes, there is, in my belief. So, so one of the crucial things I'd say, a general point, one of the crucial things I'd say about magic is it's inventive and always changing. 
So, so magic isn't something you take off the shelf and use. It, it's something you need to create, to, to form, to fashion in a way that is, is culturally, physically sensitive. So, so what I'm interested in is using some of the means of Western science to, to think through magical properties of things. So through quantum mechanics on the one hand, there's also a lot now of, of interest in the ways in which plants are sentient and communicate with each other. Trees send each other chemical messages through their roots. So if one's being attacked, another, another um, can send out chemicals to, to ward off the, the fungus that's attacking them. So I think we're, we're just gradually starting through the medium of science to re-immerse ourselves in the world and possible links that people have to quantum particles so that the observer can can influence the the behavior of the, the subatomic particles they're they're observing and then also this growing notion that the world as a whole the living world is connected sentient and i think those sorts of things hopefully can resonate with us and start us to think there are means here of, of us connecting with the world in ways that we can see as scientific and legitimate on the one hand, but, but more satisfying, more connective, more emotionally rich than the, the, the ways in which we've often connected with the world. What, what does that mean? Like, if, if I agree with you in principle that this idea of, of wholeness and empathy and connection is a great way of thinking about the world, what would be different about, about my point of view if I, if I said, okay, fine, magic? I think it's up to us all to, if, if we think this is a decent way to go, to, to think what what magic would look like, how it would operate. But but one of the things that interests me is that many cultures have a notion, much more developed notion than we do, of, of lineage and ancestry. So, so good things come through the, the power of the ancestors and therefore reciprocally, and this is where it's important, I think, we have to think of ourselves as potential ancestors, which gets easier as we go on, um, and what we want to pass on to our kids and grandkids. Um, and I think that notion of sort of part, being part of a moving chain of being and, and thinking, you know, it's not just what we can take from the world and us, you know, the, the whole sort of boomer notion. Certainly, you know, I've lived in the lap of luxury for a lot of all of my life and, and without really thinking about it very much. But I think that the more you start to think about chains of being and connection and ancestry, then then those ways of, you know, thinking about care and passing on. Um, then, then encourage you further to think about your broad moral relationship to the world, and and you know, and possibility of of increasing things in the world rather than taking more and more out of it all the time. So, an unavoidable question, one that has haunted me. So, Professor Gosden, does this all mean you believe in magic? <laughs> yes, no, well, that's, I don't know. 
is that is the I, I'm trying to I'm trying to step out of. So I'm I was brought up in both a, a Christian household, as I said, and then with a, an obvious deep belief in science. And I'm not going to give give that up. But I'm but I'm experimenting for myself to see how far. So I, I think a belief in magic for me. Is less about you know does does you know if I put a spell on someone will they get sick or if I wish for the parking place will it magically appear as it were? It, it's more about encouraging this broader participatory mindset and and so I'm experimenting for myself with notions that maybe the world is sentient, you know maybe the world out there is is something more akin to a living. Being even in its even in its non-living aspects, and and many people in the world do sincerely believe those things. So you know, is there any absolute reason why I shouldn't or can't? I mean, I'm I'm finding psychological and intellectual resistance to that idea, but I'm but I'm still you know encouraging myself and 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 experimenting with those thoughts. So if I understand you correctly. Believing in magic again isn't in the curse or or the um, you know parking space or or lucky hat. It is actually a perspective. It is a willingness to believe that my scientific understanding of the world may not be the only thing that would explain things. Is that? Is that what you're reaching for there? So as, as we were talking about Newton before, I mean, he, he developed a whole range of, of extremely powerful scientific insights, but he wanted to ground these in his Christian belief, in his notions of more moral precepts about the way in which the world works. And I think, I think that for me, is is necessary. We're looking for a much more rounded relationship often with the world. We feel alienated from the world. We feel emotionally cut off from a lot of aspects of our world. And I think if we could open up some of these more emotional, moral, um, metaphysical channels, if we thought in terms of the beyond, beyond ourselves, beyond the here and now, generations to come, generations past, then that would would allow us to live not just in a, a less extractive way, but also in a much more emotionally satisfying, less alienated relationship with the world. And I think that's clearly part of what many of us are searching for. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really great pleasure and and excellent questions and made me think of you about all these things. So thank you. And that is it for the show. We were talking to Chris Gosden, author of Magic, A History from Alchemy to Witchcraft, From the Ice Age to the Present. It is not a light book, but it's fascinating, and much like this show, it is completely devoid of any mention of, you know, the stuff. 1010, highly recommend. And since there is no such thing as that thing in this space we've created for the show, 
Perhaps I can let up on my reminders that you remember to take care of yourself. Or perhaps not. Because we all will have to leave this bubble eventually. And in the real world, I know for a fact there's still work to be done. We can't do it without you. We need you at your best. So please, take care of yourselves. <laughs>